Kia ora, welcome to Asian and Aotearoa, a podcast of uncensored conversations with Asian creatives. I'm Jenna, and in this episode, I catch up with Jean Teng. Jean is the food editor at Metro Magazine, where she writes about eating, restaurants, and eating at restaurants. Sometimes she writes about other things too. And speaking of writing, sign up to the newsletter at the link in the show notes so you get updates and cool community bits and pieces straight to your inbox. Enjoy. Welcome, Jean. Thank you for having me, Jenna. Thank you for coming on at last. At last, at yeah. Last. It's been a bit of a process. I yes. think you've asked me a couple times and I've been like, mm, I know. I'm like not really in the right <laughs> space to do it right now, but... You are now? <laughs> I think no. so. Uh, I'm definitely very nervous about this. Okay. Like I've never been interviewed before in this sort of context, like all about me you. yeah like I've been the interviewer yes but not the interviewee mm-hmm. yeah the tables are turning today yes would you mind doing a brief self-intro my name is Jean Ting I am currently the food editor at Metro Magazine which is a quarterly like current affairs lifestyle magazine um, we've been in Auckland Magazine since 1981, so quite heritage, but I started at the title probably about five years ago when it was at Bauer Media, then there was that pandemic thing that happened, it was made redundant, and have been with the current Metro title as it is now for about three years, I'd say. Um, I am a Aries sun, Virgo moon. Sagittarius Rising, Malaysian Chinese, born in Malaysia, but apparently I am 7% Vietnamese, according to a ancestry test mm-hmm. that my sister did. I mean, I think we are blood related from both ends, so, <laughs> so 7% yeah. Vietnamese. Um, and yeah, 160 cm. I mean, <laughs> is there any other? Is there any other metadata that Thanks. you no, need from me? Noted. Okay, noted. Great. If someone's a foodie and living mm. in Auckland, the chances yeah. are they've read your writing or they've been influenced by you. I mean, I hope so. It's it's sort of hard to gauge. Like as a magazine, you sort of put stuff out and then you don't really get a lot back. Mm. So I think that like that lack of engagement makes it really hard to sort of understand to what level I've I've made an impact <laughs> I guess in the in the food world here but I like to think so how do you get into food writing when I was in university I was a follower of Metro magazine not really the magazine itself but sort of a consumer of like the top 50 lists mm. which I think That was sort of the way a lot of students kind of had a relationship with Metro, specifically the cheap eats list. And I actually wrote a letter of complaint to Metro. I think this was like in 2016, sort of complaining about their coverage of Asian food. Because I don't know if you remember like the height of... Asian fusion sort of um, came to fruition in in 2016. Mm. Like that was when, uh, I guess, Wyden Wong's and like 
blueberries in and stuff, they really were popping off. And the way that Metro covered those was sort of quite different in tone to the way that I think they covered a lot of other Cheap Eats places. Like, the Cheap Eats places sort of only existed within the Cheap Eats list, whereas I think that, like, Asian fusion places were allowed to just, like restaurants Mm. that sort of um, transcended that and I actually have the note on my phone because I felt like this would come up um, (laughs) of the email how old are you? I'm probably I want to say 19 years old maybe 20 but definitely like I was very I was a very angry like young adult And still am, to be honest, in many ways. But, like, I was very reactive then. Like, there are a lot of sent emails to Auckland Transport in my inbox from when, like, I would be, like, missing. I missed a bus or, like, the bus didn't come. And I would just, like, sit there at the bus stop firing off emails about how angry I was. And then, like, three days later the reply would come and I'd be like too ashamed to click on the reply because I'm like (laughs) I was so stupid like it doesn't really matter anyway yes I was an angry teen and I don't know I said a lot of stuff but so one sentence I think that is sort of important as I said I find that your article holds a sort of legitimacy judged by white people and published by a magazine that's largely in the hands of white Aucklanders that mirrors the legitimacy afforded to Western food and Asian fusion places. So I guess I was saying that like they didn't really they didn't really think that like the cheap eats places had a legitimacy in the food media space like they weren't reviewed in the same way Mm. that maybe western restaurants were and sort of after I wrote that email I got like a very gracious reply from the food editor at that time who was sort of like you know copping it on the chin like they understood my concerns and they were like we always try to do better and they also talked back to me a little bit, like rebutted some of the stuff I said, which was fair enough. And they invited me to be on the Cheap Eats panel. So like to be a judge. Wow. This all felt like (laughs) you're calling calling a place out. Yeah, I guess so. I was calling them out, which is like something that I did a lot in my early food writing career as well. Then they were like, yeah, you seem like you know your shit and you seem like you know how to write. So why don't you like just come on and like prove it, I guess, is what they were saying to me. So I was like, okay, cool. I will do that. So I freelanced a little bit, just like eating food and like writing a little bit about it. And after that, I was at university at the time. The girl that had the job before me, she was leaving and she gave me a call to basically be like, hey, I'm leaving. I think you would be great for this role. Like, you should think about applying. And I did. And I think that, like, if I hadn't done that initial email to them, the Mm. email of complaint, like, there is just no way I would have got in the job that I do now um, because I didn't study 
journalism. Like I didn't study writing. So I wasn't really involved in <laughs> in that space at all. I love that. And also like I don't know, I just I just didn't think that like you could write about food. Like who would think that? You know, as a, as like someone in university, I studied film and marketing and I thought maybe I would fingers crossed be like in a marketing department in a film production company somewhere or wow, something like that. I love that. Yeah. So, because one of my questions was, was mm. it or is it your dream job? But you didn't even dream it up. I didn't. Someone asked me the, the other day, like, when you were a kid, what did you dream of, of being? Mm. And I said, when I was eight, I distinctly remember writing that my dream job was a travel journalist. <laughs> which is like quite a weird thing for a child to write but I think I must have just like seen it somewhere yeah. and like I was a writer from a very young age like I started writing fiction when I was you know six years old like there's notebooks full of writing um so I think I just saw travel journalist as like a legitimizing way of being able to Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we've like socially hung out together before. A few times, yeah. Um, and I, <laughs> yes. when, I was, when I was researching you, I came across your piece about chopsticks. Oh, yeah. Which we yeah. haven't spoken about that before, eh? No, I don't think so. I had no idea. No. Yeah. How do you feel like, about that now? Okay. So, like I already hinted at, like, Early on in my food writing career, like I sort of wrote a lot about my racial identity, a lot about my culture, a lot about like how it intersects or food intersects with like my race. And so the Chopsticks article was a great example of that. Um, I think the title was something like, I don't know, I can't remember, but it was about how I don't know how to use chopsticks. And it made me feel bad. It made me feel like not Chinese enough. And I think that it was important for me to like get all of that out. stuff out of the way. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of other people in this space um, have a similar experience to me when they're like very young, you know, they sort of lean on that or not lean or they they it's easy to write about that yeah. and it's something that is sort of important to them at that time. And I think now I probably wouldn't write an article like that in quite the same way, even though I still cannot use chopsticks. Really? Like that hasn't changed. I have not noticed. <laughs> sure, I, have you? Because I, I mean, we've eaten together like at Chinese restaurants. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can, but they cross over. Uh. So the chopsticks cross over at the top, which they're not meant to do. You're meant to like just have an up and down motion. Oh no! Instead, of... I don't think I use chopsticks right either. Oh okay. I know someone has commented on how I use them before, but I'm like, I don't fucking care. I'm eating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I probably, mean, yeah. it's functional. It's just like it's quite hard when you're like down to the last few grains of rice on right. the in the bowl or something. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's functional and I do vastly prefer fork and spoon, mm. which is like what we use to eat in Malaysian mm. cuisine. Mm. Mm. I'm keen to talk a little bit about the piece you wrote mm. about Asian fusion restaurants. I think I read that before I knew you. The one on spinoff? Monsoon Poon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What was the response to that? I think there were kind of two camps with it. 
one camp were the people that, or maybe three camps actually, there were definitely people that didn't realize what was going on. And once it was like pointed out, they were like outraged, you know, like it's it's 2021 or whatever it was at the time. Like, how can this still be happening? And that was like validating but then also obviously on the other side of that there were people that were like who gives a shit like it's just food what like it doesn't mean anything like you know there are Asian chefs in the kitchen Mm. and they don't care so like why would you care and then obviously I think there's that middle camp which is just sort of like ambivalent to the whole thing which is fine I think how do you feel about it now I still think it's, like, very bad. I don't know if I would have written an article about it in the same way. But I remember even then, I think I was, like, a couple of years into my food writing career. And I was, like, talking to my editor at that at the spinoff. I was freelancing for them. And I was like, I just don't want to be, like, super inflammatory. Like, I want to try and be a bit more like educational like I want to maybe have a proper conversation with the owner and if the owner like sort of understands where I'm coming from then I don't want to write that article right but then the owner was like such a dick about it that it got me like fired (laughs) up He responded to my initial email of in like a very sarcastic tone, sort of trying to pretend like he didn't know what was going on, even though he did know what was going on. I don't know. It sort of got me angry again. So that's why I wrote that that article. And actually, after I wrote that, nothing really changed. But then I think a year later, Stuff wrote an article about it and actually managed to get the words blasted off, which is really funny because you can still see the outline of the words, (laughs) which to the listeners was love you long time. That was sort of etched into the doorstep outside of the Auckland monsoon poon. Yeah, you can still see the outline of the words there, even though they've been apparently taken off. Yeah, I guess. I do feel like it's it's still like an insidious form of harm. Like, even if they don't mean anything by it, a lot of little things like that do add up and sort of contribute to an overall culture mm. of being dismissive, I guess, of of people's concerns. And you've also written about the impact of having a lack of diversity behind the scenes. <laughs> yes, people I have. Who, people who shape how we view and talk about the New Zealand food story. Yeah. And that's had a massive flow-on effect to what kind of food and people get celebrated. Mm. When did you start realising that? I realised that when I wrote the, the first letter of complaint but then it was different after actually being in the role and sort of like understanding how the PR side of things works and how when you have very limited resources editorially, it's it's just easier, I suppose, to go for like the easy story or like if a 
PR person gives you a story on a silver platter, it's like, oh, I can just run that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't have to like go out and find like my own interviewee or I don't have to go out and find my own story or my own new opening. I can just like run with, with this. And I think that like actually being in the role and actually having some sort of like power as to um, what I could influence and mm. what I could platform sort of made me realize a little bit better that sometimes it's not necessarily the intention of the people in the industry to not platform those pe those sorts of cuisines or those sorts of restaurants, but mainly that it's hard. You know, those restaurants that maybe don't get featured in the media much, they're not going to be as receptive to an email of like, hey, could I come in and like do a photo shoot here? Or like, hey, could I like come in and like interview you? Whereas like someone who is more equipped and more used to that side of things they will send off a quick email being like, yeah, sure, come in whenever you want. And so it's just like easier to do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think that it's, it is difficult and that's why I hope that, you know, even if it doesn't appear on the surface that I've changed like heaps of things where I've done like heaps of groundbreaking articles or anything, that things have shifted slowly. Yeah. But yes, that article was in response to, I believe, a wider food media issue that was happening in the States. Yeah, about the whole like Bon Appetit oh, sort yes. of saga. Yes, yeah. Yes, 2020. Eh? That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. You mentioned you were interested in how our food culture reflects our society's values, trends in everyday life. What kinds of things are being reflected at the moment? Oh, like in in the prelim sort of interview, did I write that? I think so. You wrote. You, I've got this <laughs> on, on somewhere. <laughs> okay. I've got. I, yeah, yeah, you told me. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think that like there's just been in my generation, there's just been such an explosion in like people being interested in food like I think it's hard to understate the fact that like people care so much about it to the point where like you know you have people creating content and like reviewing places because they like to do that yeah on the side <laughs> you know like sometimes I think oh it's a hobby as a hobby, yeah. yeah. Like, they spend their own money, you know, they spend their own time. And, like, TikTok videos are not easy to edit. Yeah. Like, they are a nightmare, you know, because they're not very long and there are a lot of cuts. Yeah. And they're, they're <laughs> like, doing a voiceover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that, like, it's a really exciting time for disruption in food media, you know, like, perhaps the sort of institutional voices, including Metro, have less of a pool for deciding like what's good and what's not good. In some ways, it's that sort of a detriment because you do have a loss of things like restaurant criticism, which I feel like quite strongly about. But at the same time, there's a lot of upsides as well, because, you know, you 
do get an increase in sort of what I complained about in my original letter is like you get an increase in the opposite of that. Like you get uh, more, like smaller places get better visibility. They are, um, it's easier to like reach the audiences that they want to reach through those people. Like they don't have to rely on traditional media to do that anymore. And yeah, I think like all of that is really great to be honest and I see that as like probably quite like the biggest shift in food culture. What's exciting you about Auckland's food scene at the moment? (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I feel (laughs) (laughs) nothing. Okay. (laughs) Oh god. I feel like I'm so not jaded but I just like think about food so much that sometimes it becomes like a blur to me because I have to be so on top of the new openings and like what's new things sort of like flatten out and that's like so horrible to say but because you're telling people all the time the new you're literally the the person (laughs) telling people where to go yeah yeah I think I'm excited mainly by the prospect of a new generation of people who are like I don't know, 1.5 immigrants or sons and daughters of people who immigrated here and taking their, like, culture's cuisine. And I hate using the word elevating it, but, you know, sort of reworking it in a way that makes it easier to reach different audiences and sort of influencing change in in that way when I was younger like five years ago I think I would have been like why would why do they have to do that like why do cultures have to change the way they serve their food in order to make it like palatable to the westerners basically like we shouldn't have to do that they should come to us and I I still sort of feel that a little bit but I do think there is value in presenting your culture's cuisine in a way that makes it, I don't know, that's sort of in the same genre as the restaurants that do get those awards. Because it's kind of like, why should we have to miss out on that? Like, why should we be blocked off from that recognition? Yeah, yeah. good answer. Thank you. Okay. I love it when people say that. And good question. What? When someone says good question. <laughs> How would you describe your leadership? My leadership? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's an interesting question because I don't really regard myself as a leader, which I think... But objectively, you can see how people would see you as a leader. A leader in what, though? What, what, what do you think I would be a leader in? Like a leader Food in my team? field? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that my approach to leadership is that, like, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm leading Mm. and like, I don't know, I was talking about this with my therapist Mm -hmm. (laughs) last week Mm -hmm. because we were kind of talking about career goals and how I see myself moving forward and that, and part of that is like, in perhaps in a leadership role, like a more um, official leadership role, not just like within a field or within like this industry. And she was like to me, Jean, I really see you as a leader. (laughs) Like I see that for you. 
And I was like, that's so interesting because I don't think I would have ever thought of that myself. Like, I feel when no one really, I don't know, maybe this isn't true, but no one really, in my experience, like, sets out to leadership. Like, leadership sort of just, like, comes to you in some way. Like, it sort of just lands on your plate and you're like, okay, like... I guess this is what I'm I'm doing now. And my therapist gave me this book called Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Brene, yes, Brene Brown. Do you yeah, know yeah, that? Brown. Okay. I, I haven't read the book, but yeah. Brene Brown, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you who, know doesn't Brene, know, who doesn't okay. know Brene Brown? I did not know who Brene Brown was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I did okay. not know who Brene Brown was. You haven't watched her, like, most famous TED Talk? No. About, what was it? I think it's about shame. Okay, yeah, she guilt. does a lot of work in like um, the shame and like her, vulnerability. Her TED Talk is one of the most, I actually don't quote my this, but it's a massively watched mm. TED Talk. Right, okay. And? Well, I got through like the first chapter. And? And I think I struggle a lot with like the earnestness of it all. Like, I don't think I'm a very like, oh, I don't know. I am an emotional person. But I think that I sort of get a bit iffy when language is, like, really um, therapized or really, like, academic in a way and very, like, as I said, like, boldly, like, earnest. And for some reason, I just, like, couldn't connect with it. And perhaps, like, that's an indicator that, I don't know, like, I view... Maybe I'm not ready to be a leader. No, I have no idea. No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Just okay. because you can't get through fucking Brene Brown's, Brene yeah. Brown's book does not mean you're not ready to lead. No. <laughs> Don't use that as your meter. No. Um, I am, That's interesting, though. Yeah. Yeah. I am like, I'm conflict. I'm definitely conflicted about it. Um, Do you think? The idea of, of lead leadership and like, is, is that it, something is it something you like actively practice? Is it something that you consciously cultivate? Like is it something that you think about when you go on your day to day? Uh no, but I do evaluate other people's leadership. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's only because I I was working in leadership development. Right. I have a complicated like relationship to this idea of like being a girl boss. Oh, I no, you know no, no. <laughs> Actually, the girl bossification. Yes, oh, that like, was already twenty sixteen implication. 20, yeah, 20, I'm like yeah, the lean in girl boss. I don't want to be considered it. a girl no. boss. I, I, you know, no. no. <laughs> I'm not a girl boss, but like I can, we can be a girl boss <laughs> yeah. ironically in yes. a girl boss yeah. that sort of <laughs> yeah. I think that I have issues. Well, not issues, but I think a lot about like my ambition. And, mm. like, how I feel about it and whether I want to pursue it in some ways. Like, sometimes I I think to myself, oh, maybe it would be easier if I didn't um, lean into this, like, ambitious side of myself and I was just – I just tried to be happy and content with what I have and, like – you know, doing my little, like, nine-to-five job or mm. whatever. Mm. Like, that's not a bad way to live. And I, 
I feel like maybe that would be like a happier way to live. I don't know. So I am like contending with this idea. Do I need to be a leader? Like, do I do I want to be, you know? Yeah, but I think... We think I should be a leader. <laughs> I think like, you are a leader. Like, sorry, <laughs> personally. <laughs> I think personally you're yeah. a leader. But I think the world needs leaders and mm. the world needs good leadership. Right. Whether or not you feel like that is another thing. But mm. I think it's interesting to consider how we feel about leadership. And if we're uncomfortable with being labelled a leader, mm. how come? Is that because we think leaders are fucking assholes? <laughs> like, all the girl boss stuff, it's all very white feminism, mm. babes do business mm. shit, you know? Yeah. Um, well, what's your relationship with leadership? Um, like, have you been a leader in your job in the past? or I've been in senior leadership positions. Yeah. I also, I didn't at first, but consider me leaving an agency role mm. to do something, to do a whole lot of different things was leadership. Mm. Leadership doesn't mean that you are, you have 50 direct reports. Whatever. Right. You can lead without actually managing people. Yeah. Okay. I guess I didn't think about it in that way which is why i said like at the beginning of this question like yeah, i don't what... consider myself a leader yeah. yeah yeah i guess i never considered that i was like a leader in in my field but maybe <laughs> <laughs> really i think because what i do feels like so insular sometimes mm. like metro isn't really like out in the world we're contained to a small magazine well, not small, it's actually like 300 pages, so it's quite a big one. <laughs> um, but we're contained and, you know, I do a weekly newsletter called Metro Eats, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the way I try to keep in touch with the food world and with, like, readers and stuff. Um, but even that is just like, you know, you send it out and you don't hear back, really. Mm. Um, so I... Yeah, I guess because we're so insular, it doesn't really occur to me that what I do has sort of an impact maybe on the people who will come after me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What do you do when you need to write something, but you're staring at a blank page and a blinking cursor? (laughs) Um, I often just go do something else. (laughs) <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I, but you're up against deadline. Yeah. I honestly, like, the way I operate is that I write in, like, spurts. I will not do anything for a really, really long time, and then I'm up against deadline, and for some reason I can just write, like, 5,000 words. Oh, my. <laughs> it's sort of the way I operate and always have, and it does get very like worrying and frustrating when you are getting closer and closer to the deadline um (laughs) but like I don't have any techniques for writer's block I don't have any like things that I do I just like go away and do something else and hope that I trust in myself and my ability that I can I can get it get it done (laughs) is it stressful It is stressful. There are certain parts of it that are stressful for sure. But like I've been writing in this way and writing like Metro content for so long that I think that I can like, I know it in myself that I can do it. Mm. Like I know that my future self has the ability to like get everything out and get it done. And so I, I, I have faith. 
And that faith, is that something that has always been with you or that's just grown through experience? I think it's grown through experience. I do really believe quite strongly that my writing has like really improved and it's not something that I like saw throughout the journey. I just started seeing it one day being like, oh shit, like my writing is actually really good. And like, (laughs) you know, it's not something you necessarily notice. Someone said something to me the other day because I was, you know, being down in my writing as a lot of writers do. They don't necessarily like what they write. And they were like, I think you've gotten like to the point of goodness in your writing that you can see where things could be better. I was like, oh shit, like, Yes, that's Mm. true. Like, Mm. I can see in my writing, like, oh, I could be writing this in, like, a better way. And so I think that's a source of, like, frustration to me now. Okay. Creativity. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about what you sent through about creativity. (laughs) Yeah. Okay? So there's two bits to this. Yes. The first bit, you said, okay, and I quote, I think that the ability to be creative can be really impacted when you're working full-time and within an organization, Mm. no matter how flexible the organization is or how much autonomy you're given, Mm. which I totally agree because when I started this podcast, I was working Mm part-time. I'm working full-time now. Mm. Let me tell you, if I was working full-time a couple of years ago, I don't know if I'd be able to create a podcast. Right. Yeah. Because you just don't have time for there's, it there's the space not just like time but also like in your mind yeah. i guess also i'm single got no kids live alone mm. so i've got space there's a privilege like i've got space for it yeah do you have anything to say in response to that <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is that like on the outside i think a lot of people would view metro and the job that i do as a creative job because i'm writing And I'm creating content. So in that way, it is creative, right? But I do think that sometimes it's really hard to see it as creativity. Because it is work. Like, it is work that you are getting paid for. And when you're doing it, it doesn't feel creative. Like, it doesn't feel like you are being creative. And I think that might be the difference. Mm. It's like... You know, I do know that I'm very lucky to have the job that I have. Like, a lot of people are like, what a cool gig. And I'm like, yes, it is, like, an extremely great job. And, like, it's allowed – it's very flexible and, as I said, a lot of autonomy. But, you know, it is still a job. Like, Mm. I I am (laughs) – I'm writing for work. Yeah. And what other ways are you creative? Well, I write a lot and read a lot in my personal time. So I'm a writer, fiction writer, mainly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Tell me more. I've been writing fiction, I want to say, like I said earlier on, since I was like six years old and I was like writing about princesses. Uh-huh. Love, yeah. Um, who all had like blonde Hair and blue eyes, which is something I did unpick in a university assignment, of course. (laughs) Since then, like, I've 
ridden like so much so much work and I think back to like my you know primary intermediate high school days like I was just churning that shit out like I was just opening word documents writing stories never finishing them Mm. but like writing heaps of like at least the first few chapters of stories and I think you'll be excited to hear this, that I was a big fan fiction writer. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I am excited about that. Um, a big fan fiction writer and reader as well. Um, I would say that is the basis of my serious writing. Are you doing that now? Fan fiction? Yes. No, oh. I'm not doing it now. I'm very sorry to disappoint. But it wasn't that long ago that I was doing it. <laughs> Um, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Like, I think I probably would have posted something on AO3, mm. Archive of Our Own, mm. um, <laughs> for, like, 2013? Like, 2014? So, like, wow. I don't know. It was... Late high school, early university for me, I was still reading fan fiction. And I think, like, that's really shaped me as a writer today. Which, you know, I think it has shaped a lot of people. Like, I feel like a lot of people in my generation who are writers came out of writing fan fiction. And that's probably something that's not talked about very much. But it is something you notice when you're reading novels. Mm. It's like, sometimes you can tell, Yes. oh, this writer used to write fan fiction. Even if you don't know for sure. Yeah, like, yeah. You, there's sort of, like, tropes and language and, like, little itsy-bitsy things that, that you sort of recognize if you are a frequent fan fiction <laughs> reader. I got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was young, I was writing, like, um, Harry Potter fan fiction mainly. I was posting stuff on harrypotterfanfiction.com. The pairings mm. that I would write would mainly be, like, Draco Hermione, like... <sighs> Serious black slash OC, OC meaning original character. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sort of stuff. Um, Yeah, so I've been creative in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, this is like a, I was just like, really wanting to talk about fan fiction with you and I just like saw an opportunity you had to take it and I like had to take it Um, so but are you reading any fan fics at the moment um not so much now but like I was still reading fan fiction till about like a few years ago I have a lot of time for it like I think people can be very dismissive of it but it sort of made me realize like how much how much people care about it and like how much people care about writing and how much they would write for no money like yeah. these people were writing like 100k novels yeah. and putting it out on the internet for free yeah. like yeah. just for free yeah. and it was good writing like some of it was like really good writing that I was like this should be published and often what would happen is like the writers would take it off yes. the internet and repurpose it to be published novels if it got really um, popular so I think that sort of shaped how I think about creativity maybe mm. is like oh it's something that you should really be like passionate about and it's something that yeah you should care quite quite deeply about which is maybe I have why I have such a complicated relationship with creativity and my and my work mm. and like not being able to feel as if I'm creative at work because I'm like, oh, this isn't creative, you know? Because you're in fantasy land with Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
but yeah, I've been trying to write um, fiction outside of my work. And sometimes I think, would I be more creative if I didn't have writing as my job? Mm. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, like totally. Some, sometimes like, oh, will I just have more bandwidth in my writing to commit to it more if I didn't if I wasn't writing like 6,000 word articles about like the best bars in Auckland (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah the second part of what you said is I also think that creativity or the perception of creativity is so highly valued over other equally important qualities (laughs) yeah I did say that. Um, to the detriment of people's output, you can still create important, interesting work, even if it doesn't fit into the realm of what you think is creative. Mm. So my question is, what fits into the realm of things that you find, quote unquote, creative? I guess just all the obvious stuff, like music, poetry, short stories. What are the other equally important qualities, do you reckon? Well, I think that the thing that... The, situ- the trouble that I'm in with in terms of that is that I've sort of landed myself in a network and like a group of friends who are all very creative, interesting people, which I value like very highly. But I think that sort of put like a external pressure onto me, whether or not they intended or not of like wanting to meet that, of like wanting to be like as creative, as creatively successful uh, as them, yeah, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I think like, oh, would they be friends with me if I wasn't in this job? Uh, like yeah. if I didn't yeah, have yeah, this yeah. job and if I wasn't like a writer, would they yes. be friends with me? Yeah. And it's not like, maybe it's not a legitimate concern, but it's definitely something that I think about. Yes. And so that's why I guess I said um, there are other um, important values and other like other work that I think is important that is not necessarily cr- creative, yeah. right? You shouldn't assign value to your perceived like output of of creativity. Like you can still be like a very interesting, intelligent great person without having a side hustle (laughs) yeah yeah and basically what i'm hearing is also there's more to you than your job title than this thing that you do and get paid for yeah i think so you know my friends will introduce me as like this is jean she's like the food editor of metro and everyone would be like wow that's so cool and like great and you know what a great job and i really like that I appreciate that Mm. you know but also like a part of me is like that's not all (laughs) that's not that's that's not all I do I'm gonna introduce you as Jean she writes true money fan fiction (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) you can do that if you like I don't mind yeah I think that's something that I I struggle with Mm. you know this idea that I have to be a creative person it's like why (laughs) You know? Yes. No, I totally, I Mm. totally get it. Yeah. What's essential for great collaboration? Great collaboration. I think that if you want to work with people, it's just essential to know them well. (laughs) Like know their strengths 
and know like what they are capable of because I think that if you're always if there's a lack of something and you like expecting it it can create a lot of tension within like collaborators so I think it's really important to like understand what people are good at doing and like what they're not good at doing so that it ensures that you are not disappointed in any way and that you're like fully briefed on how the collaboration's going to work does that make sense to you so does that mean that you're pretty good at being like I'm quite good at this but I'm shit at that so don't get me to do it I think so I think that's like just the easiest way of going about it it's like if people expect something from you and you know that you can't deliver it like it's just gonna cause problem down the line like it's just gonna cause like some stress stress but also like passive aggressive bullshit like I don't know if you've ever worked in a small team before Mm -hmm, yeah but just like the amount of passive aggressiveness that can fester in a small team is like is crazy right because you don't want to like rock any boat you don't want to like say something that could cause problems in like the work the project that you're doing so I think being realistic about expectations and about everyone's role Mm. in the collaboration Mm. is like really important um like for example me and our good friend Sam Mm -hmm. Lowe Mm -hmm. are talking about like doing something together Mm. And we are so so different and it's like very clear to us like what our individual like parts to play are mm-hmm. in that partnership. And I think that's like the key yeah. to like a good collaboration. So complimenting <laughs> each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like things just work work along and work, I mean things just like tick along, you know? Mm. Yeah. How do you feel about self love? Hmm. That is actually one of the topics when you sent through that I didn't think about at all. Oh, why is that? (laughs) Uh So avoidance. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is my approach to self-love. I don't consciously think about it. I don't think that I consciously am carrying out acts or routines that contribute to the ideas of of self-love you know I am a big I ascribe to treat culture like I love (laughs) (laughs) I love that I ascribe to treat culture yeah like I love my little treats Uh and I don't deny myself little treats yeah but in terms of like the broader the broader topic of self-love I guess yeah I've never I I've not thought about it so if you want to put Brene Brown's book down Mm. Yeah. And pick out Sonia Renee Taylor's My Body Is Not an Apology. And so what she says, so when you talk about self-love, radical self-love, okay. She says radical self-love is a deeper, wider, and more expansive than anything we would call self-confidence or self-esteem. It is juicier than self-acceptance. Including the word radical offers us a self-love that is the root or origin of of our relationship to ourselves and then she goes on to write about how you know when we're babies we come out and we're not hating ourselves Mm. we come out in our body we are like in our body Mm. that's kind of what i'm thinking about right like whether i hate myself or not (laughs) 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 and something else i got from that book 
was, you know, in a world where we're told mm. that whatever marginalised body or whatever our bodies are yeah. to actually love ourselves right. is radical. Yeah. I guess how would you go about actively seeking that? Like, I think the what- first step is like, is kind of considering where you are with it in the mm. first instance. Hmm. Hmm. I think I can be quite volatile in that. Towards yourself? Yeah, towards myself. You know, I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome, definitely suffer from a case of, like, in some respects, low self-esteem. But then other times, like, my sense of ego is, like, so inflated and high... <laughs> that it sort of balances out, but maybe not in the healthiest way because it's like, oh, I I feel such a superiority sometimes to people. But then also, like, I do think I have um, a history of, like, low self-esteem and thinking that I I can't do do things or, like, as you... as you as we talked about earlier, like be in a leadership position, mm. you know, because I don't feel as if I can do that. So yeah, I would definitely describe my relationship to self love as murky, not something that I consider actively, and like perhaps is something that I I should. I don't but, know if it should, but would you be interested? I think so. Like I was telling you, you know, I started going to see a therapist. A month ago now and I've not quite gotten my head around it I don't yet fully like I've not fully worked through what it can do for me and like what it is doing to me but I think that I sort of see it as like a step towards that towards like trying to understand myself yeah yeah um, you know, I, I'm always sort of in a way obsessed with myself. Like I do like knowing, like I like exploring uh, astrology, not because I necessarily believe in it, but because like it's sort of to me a tool of further understanding who I am and how I operate. Mm. And I sort of see therapy, whether this is like correct or not, as another way of doing that is like trying to see if I can untangle myself and be in a position where I see myself and see life differently. But I do still struggle with the sort of like psychotherapy terms and thinking. Like when you were when you were reciting that to me, my mind sort of like glazed not glazed but it didn't like attach itself to the words and I often find myself feeling that way with like self-help kind of speak Mm. and I don't know what that is like whether I'm coming from a place of like ugh, this is like you know yeah Yeah, 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 this is cringe yeah yeah and perhaps that is something that's like blocking my ability to fully you know Love myself. Yeah, but I I agree. Even I talking about self-love, even though it's something that I'm definitely continuously working on, leaning into, exploring, Mm. talking about it, I'm like, oh, like there is definitely Mm. something talking about self-love. I'm like, ugh, it's positioned, I think, as cringe. Yeah, but obviously it gets through to people. Like, you know, it helps so many people. And like you said, 
that Brene Brown TED talk is seen by like millions and millions of people around the world. So I think it's like once you get past that sort of initial so, like, <laughs> yeah, then maybe something, there's something, something, there's something there. there. Um, yeah, that like can actually help. How spiritual would you say you are? Uh, I would say not at all. <laughs> I would probably say not at all. And I guess it would depend on like what you mean by by spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could explain what do you, no, that what do, a bit. What do, what do you think <laughs> when I say spiritual? Okay. Well, I kind of see it as like a two-parter. I suppose in one aspect, spiritual is a connection to something outside of yourself. So whether that is like religious, so God, or whether that is just like a feeling or like an entity of some sort. And then also, I guess I see spiritual as like a cultural thing. Mm. Yeah, I think like there is a way of being culturally spiritual, if that if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. So especially being Asian. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, being Asian. Like I, um, my grandparents weren't, you know, religious by any means. But if someone died, like you'd still have the shrine. Yeah, you'd yeah. still have like the incense, etc. So it's not something that I'm like totally alien alien to. But it's not something I've ever really explored or, like, found myself wanting to explore. Yeah, it's not something that I practice in, in like, any respect, probably. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I do and I don't, like, uh, conceive it as, as spirituality mm-hmm. or maybe because, I don't yeah. think of it as that. Yeah. You must get, like, quite a lot of varying answers Definitely. on that question. Yeah. Are there people that are kind of like, ugh, I would never like yeah. I I don't I hate that yeah. the idea of that. Which is like I don't know. I, I don't think I would react in the same way. Like I don't think I'm closed off mm. to the idea. Mm. It's just like never something that has entered my um realm of, yeah. of interest. Or you're not you're not framing it in the spirituality. You're not labeling something as that. Yeah. Because spirituality I also see as like a connection to oneself. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, so I wrote, I actually wrote an article in the next Metro, which is yet to be released, uh-huh. about my experience with, with therapy. And I kind of talk in it a little bit about how I see myself as like the ideal therapy patient. <laughs> um, because I think about myself so much and... I articulate myself mm. often in the way that I would articulate like how my characters are thinking or feeling. And so like when I'm talking about myself, I often like, yeah, like I I, I do think about like how I act in this world, how I operate my feelings, like how they connect with like my feelings of childhood and like my, you know, how I grew up, like, quite a lot but I would never like consider any of that to be connected to spirituality maybe it isn't maybe I just like don't know just like talking about myself (laughs) (laughs) and that's fine it's a good thing you're on a podcast because that's what we do yeah am I doing okay (laughs) yeah yeah, really good Okay. okay was there anything else that we haven't spoken about before we go into finish these sentences 
I'm not sure. There are some things on the horizon which, like, could see, like, a big shift in, like, what I'm doing and how I think of myself, I think. And that's quite scary because I have um, been attached to this identity Uh, and, like, you know, to what I'm doing right now for a really long time. Um, And I do think I ascribe a lot of value of who I am to this job, to my job Mm. and to like what I'm doing. And so like, yeah, it'll be really interesting if that shift does happen to sort of see like where I end up in this world. It's very vague. (laughs) (laughs) Very vague. Yeah. Um, I think that covers it. Yeah, the food writing stuff, I suppose, is just, yeah, the race stuff with food. Recently, I've started thinking, is it a mistake not to do that more? You mean calling out? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, no one really is doing it, but then also, like, I don't really have that in me anymore. Like, and I think I that's Okay. I think there is a part of me that's like, oh, I could really lean into it and be like more of an ambassador or like more of a voice for that sort of aspect of, of food media, especially like with the platform that I that I have, like the privilege of the platform that I have. And I think some might see it as like a wasted opportunity that, you know, that I'm not fully like exploring what I could I could do with it so I have been thinking about that what are your thoughts do you trust your intuition (laughs) I don't think so no (laughs) (laughs) because it's really funny because I'm just listening to you you've said you've noticed that you say you do say a lot Mm. I think I'm just noticing you're really up here (laughs) yeah you do say a lot of things (laughs) (laughs) like Like, like a lot of words where it's going to be interesting with your journey with therapy mm. as you go into, like, what's kind of going on under here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I would love to know myself. Yeah, I'm a very introspective thinker, but maybe I, I think into something that's not true. Maybe I, I construct things. Well, what about, well, like, I guess how do you feel in your body? I am quite, like, an anxious person. Uh. And so I think that's where the thinking comes from you know my body feels anxious Mm. so my thoughts feel ordered Mm. does that make any sense at all it does um i like to make my thoughts ordered or like i i like to think about things deeply um to try and make sense of it and i don't always get there like i don't always think myself out of anxiety like that's not possible but it's sort of like a, a mechanism for me to get myself out of that that place of like feelings that so deeply. When are you at ease? I think that like I find myself most at ease when I'm reading. <laughs> so so yeah, yeah. So, not, so, so. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, just, I get it. I love it too. I love not being yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just like love I just fucking love reading fiction novels like so much and I've really been like 
rediscovering that lately because like everyone I had a period of like not being able to read it at all mm. and I have a friend who's a big non-fiction reader like she can't read fiction at all and I'm like I just don't understand how you can do that is that like, because she can't doesn't have a she can't, doesn't see pictures in her head oh is that something people don't yes. do because when I read I, it's like oh, it's a movie right okay. there are people that don't have that at all you know, I actually don't know if it's a movie in my head either. What? Like, <laughs> I don't know. When you're I, reading, I think, do you yeah. not see it? Do you not, like, uh, reading a fiction book and it's like you're there? I not. I think I, like, I just think the words. Like, I think I just, like... You don't see the characters in no, your head? No, like, I think <laughs> I... I know, like, I don't think I see them doing the things. Like, I think I just, like, evaluate the words and, like... I just look at the the structure of the sentence and like <laughs> and like really love how it's written. Is that like so? <laughs> is that like really weird to say for, for a fiction for a fiction reader? I find it really yeah. interesting. I don't. Yeah. So you're not transported to another world, so to speak. No, like I I feel things mostly. Like I think I feel things very deeply. Yeah. And I I read a lot of fiction novels in which people are very like fucked up or like sad you like the angst don't you i like the angst love the angst and i think it's just like um it, it meets something in me that like allows me to like just sit in it i like that too there's something <laughs> there's something in me that's yeah yeah an read. not that i mean i'm not the most like overtly optimistic person but i'm not like I am optimistic in some ways, but I just, I, I, I think there is just something so like satisfying in like exploring that sadness. And it's something that, to go back to fan fiction, I do think fan fiction does really well because it's often written by people in their like teens or early 20s, mm. a time when things are really like turbulent. Mm. And so you just feel that like on the page, like yeah. you just feel this like outpour of emotion whereas I think like when you get a bit older it's a bit more restrained and you're a bit more intellectual and you're a bit more like wanting to sound smart and so you don't get that that as much <laughs> sorry I'm like really all over the place yeah, I don't know yeah. how we got there we're talking about spirituality but I don't know but hey we went there finish these sentences yes I'm feeling inspired by <laughs> I think I'm feeling inspired by the prospect of like writing again, like for myself. You know, it's something that is fairly new to me in this stage of my life. Like it's something I've only embarked on in the last like year or so, like sporadically. But I just want to feel the way that I did about it when I was younger yeah. and I think that like I'm really inspired by the potential of that mm. feeling mm. yeah I'm really looking forward to probably like the holidays <laughs> <laughs> like a rest, the period. Yeah, a rest period I don't know I don't really I'm not a forward-thinking person like I don't think about my life very far ahead how far like, my calendar is 
only booked like next week. (laughs) I don't have anything beyond next week, basically. Well, I'd love to be known for. I really want to be known for being good at what I do. And I don't really mind what it is. I ideally would want to be known for being a very good author, very good writer, have some books out, etc. But if life doesn't take me that way and I end up doing something else, I just want to be known for, like, being good at it. Like, I I just don't want to be in a job or a career or, like, a life in which people think I'm bad. (laughs) (laughs) People think you're incompetent. You don't want to be seen as incompetent. I honestly, like, I value competence so much. Like, I just... I get it. (laughs) I love competent people. (laughs) I like to be competent. I just love it when people say they're going to do something Mm. and, like, they do it. Like, Mm. that really gets me going, Mm. you know? So, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I... Good. You good. Wanna, yeah, I want to yeah. be good. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. Thanks, Jane. Cool. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode was made possible thanks to Foundation North, Creative New Zealand, and Big Fan. If you liked that, please subscribe, share, and review the podcast, and stay tuned for updates. Mm-hmm.